0: Well, uh, let me uh, add my welcome to you, to that of uh, Gareth early in the service. And uh, let me encourage you, if you would, to, just to uh, take out again uh, this uh, handout with the reading uh, that Joe read for us just a little bit earlier. We're going to uh, turn to that uh, in just a moment. We've had a, a terrific week this week, um, considering the, the top six questions asked through our survey as we've been meeting Monday through Friday at Birkdale School. Uh, and as we've done that, we've considered uh, engaging, stimulating and largely Uh, intellectual questions but this evening is different as we consider why is there so much sadness in our world yes it is an intellectual question uh, yet it is a deeply personal question as we've heard as Beth has spoken a question that affects us intensely Uh, and we uh, know that through Beth's experience we we know it this weekend through the death of Jill senior one of our own And her loss we feel very acutely today. So I'm going to pray for us now as we uh, consider this question. So let's pray together. Heavenly Father, God of all comfort and Father of compassion, thank you that you are a God who loves, who cares, who is compassionate and kind. And so we ask you to help us this evening as we grapple with a question which bothers us. Help me not only to speak to the mind, but also to be aware of the tender hearts here this evening as we grapple with this most personal question. And we ask it through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. A nine-year-old girl was walking home from school and saw her grandmother waving to her on the other side of the road. Delighted to see her grandma, she ran across the road and was hit by a passing car. Uh, She was rushed to hospital but pronounced dead on arrival. A newly married couple returned from honeymoon, having had the holiday of a lifetime and, quote, as happy as anyone could be. A few weeks later, the young man was knocked off his pushbike and killed instantly. As I visited the young wife to arrange the funeral, there were still unopened wedding presents in the front room. And a week later, I found myself in this church with the coffin in front of me, standing in in the exact spot where seven weeks earlier I'd conducted their wedding and wish them all the best for a long and happy future together. A mother took her nine-month-old son to the doctor's after the little boy had been crying incessantly and showing a high temperature. The doctor sent her home and told her to give the little boy regular doses of Calpol. Showing no signs of improvement, she took him back to the surgery. The doctor told her not to worry and to continue with the Calpol. The doctor did the same when she returned the next day, and on the fourth day she took him to hospital where he was diagnosed with meningitis. And although treated, by now the disease had taken hold and the little boy was left brain damaged, deaf, and blind. All real stories of real people I've known from 20 years of pastoral ministry. Why is there so much sadness in our world? And whether it be the, the personal tragedies or, or the terrible accidents, uh, one of which we've heard tonight, the terrible accidents. One of which we've witnessed uh, on the news uh, with the motorway pileup, or global catastrophes, earthquakes, tsunamis, nuclear disasters, cruel dictators causing havoc and civil war. Suffering is everywhere, and all of us will experience it at some point in our lives. So, why is there so much suffering in our world? Now, the Bible grapples with this issue of suffering in our world uh, uh, often. whole sections of the Bible are given over to that one question and it does give us some very helpful answers but there are no easy answers. Uh, To my mind, this is one of the most iconic images of suffering in the 21st century. Uh, The picture of New York's Twin Towers uh, just moments after two airplanes have been deliberately uh, driven into them. It is one of those moments in history when you never forget where you were when you heard the news. But but as we look at it, we can begin to answer the question, why? Why did that happen? Because evil people plotted to bring destruction upon ordinary people who were simply going about their everyday lives. So much of the pain and suffering we see in our world is caused by evil dictators or or terrorist organisations or or the result of war or, or greedy, lawless individuals yes, we may have questions about why God doesn't act, why he doesn't stop that sort of thing. And those are critical and crucial questions. But in many cases, we can see that evil human beings are to blame. And so I reckon the really big questions about suffering come from the apparently indiscriminate, random suffering we see in our world. Why did my mum develop cancer and why was it so painful at the end? Why in March this year did the Japanese tsunami happen, killing over 20,000 people? Or, or, as one person wrote on the question card, why are some people born with disabilities? Well, to answer that, the Bible takes us right back to the beginning of time. And it tells us that from the very first moment in time, human beings rebelled against God. And that was such a calamitous event. It affected the whole world. It sort of put the whole world out of kilter. One Bible writer describes it as if the whole creation is groaning in agony. It's as if, if I can put it this way, the whole creation has been involved in a car crash. I saw a a crumpled car on the roadside earlier this this week. Appropriately, it was on Carsick Lane, and boy, did the car look sick. The front end completely smashed up, and as I looked at it, it made me wince. Now, it's as if our world has been in a cosmic car crash. And so every time we experience suffering and injustice in this world of sadness and pain, we are feeling the impact of the crash, our, our rebellion against God. And when we see the results, we should flinch and recoil at it. We should feel uneasy about it because it's just not right. And every time we experience suffering, it should tell us how bad our rebellion against God really is. It's had that kind of impact on our world. We live in a broken world and we human beings broke it by rebellion against the God who made it. That's why there's so much sadness in our world. But I reckon that isn't an answer that fully scratches where people are itching. See, as I talk to people about this issue of suffering, very often they're asking one of two questions, or maybe both questions. They're either asking the question of the existence of God. When I see all this stuff, all this suffering around, can I really believe that God exists? Or secondly, they're questioning the character of God. When I look at all this, well, even if God is there... I might even believe he's there. What does it tell me about him? Is he a good God or not? Following the Asian tsunami on Boxing Day in 2004, when 250,000 people perished, one reporter wrote these words that will come up on the screen now. If God is God, he's not good. If God is good, he's not God. You can't have it both ways, especially after the Indian Ocean catastrophe. The journalist was asking a really important question. How could a good and all-powerful God allow these things to happen? Either he's not there, he doesn't exist, or he's not good or not powerful enough to solve these problems. Jerry Sitzer, a theological professor, wrote this very moving book. It's called A Grace Disguised. I read it a couple of years ago. He wrote it following the deaths of his wife, his mother and his daughter in a car crash caused by a drunk driver. Uh, There were more members of the family in the the car at the time, uh, but it was his wife, his mother and his daughter who were killed instantly. He was in the car as well and got out of it without a scratch, remarkably. Uh, He writes this in this book. Uh, I wondered if I could trust a God who allowed or caused suffering in the first place. My loss made God seem very distant and unfriendly, as if he lacked the power or the desire to prevent or deliver me from suffering. I was not sure I could trust in this God. He described how he turned the events of that dreadful day over and over in his mind again and again, and then a few pages on he writes this, Maybe I thought there really is no God and no meaning to life. For many people, evil and suffering proves that there is no God. But may I ask you to consider this this evening. Evil and suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. Evil and suffering may be, if anything, evidence for God. See, it's this issue of suffering and injustice that the section of the Bible on the handout grapples with. The Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses... 14 to 22 just look at verse 16 there he writes and i saw something else under the sun Uh, that phrase under the sun comes all the way through this particular section of the bible ecclesiastes all the way through the book the writer is saying look at life under the sun Uh, look at life as if god didn't exist george michael in his album patience asks uh, this question is it my imagination or did god already leave the table such destruction George Michael is doing a very subtle thing. He, he says, I'm looking around at the world, and God may be up there in heaven, but what if he's left the table? What if he's like an absentee landlord? What if he's doing something else now? He's not interested in the world he's created. Now, that's verse 16, life under the sun, life apart from God. Either God doesn't exist, or if he exists, he's not interested, and he's not paying any attention to what's going on in the world And so in this book, Ecclesiastes, the writer takes God out of the equation so that he can show us what we're left with. And in this section of of his book, at the end of chapter 3, he looks at the problem of suffering and injustice. And his first point, take God out of the equation, and there simply is no justice. You see it there, verse 16? In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Uh, In our survey, someone asked, um, if you exist, why do you make innocent people suffer? Uh, Someone else wrote these words, why do bad things happen to good people and good things happen to bad people? And another person wrote very simply, why is life so unfair? It's the problem of injustice. Injustice bothers us. Uh, That's why, as I understand it... um, There are protesters camped outside St. Paul's Cathedral. It's the issue of injustice, of of inequality, of the the fact that some people are so hugely rich in this world and others so very poor. Injustice bothers us. And for some, it's reason enough not to believe in Jesus Christ. But this writer, the writer of Ecclesiastes, says something quite different. He says the opposite. He says, if you view life from under the sun... Verse sixteen Wickedness still reigns, injustice still dominates. Now, at approximately nine thirty on the morning of march thirteenth, nineteen ninety six, Thomas Hamilton, age forty three, left his home at number seven Kent Road in Dunblane and drove to the Dunblane primary school with a pair of pliers, four handguns and more than seven hundred rounds of ammunition. Once there, he cut the telephone wires on a nearby pole and then walked with weapons in hand to a side entrance of the school. Hamilton then burst into the assembly hall where a class of five- and six-year-old children were having a gym lesson, and he opened fire. And in that moment of madness, 16 children and one teacher were shot dead. Now, quite legitimately, you may ask, how do you square that sort of thing with a loving, just, and sovereign lord? That is an important question that needs to be grappled with. But be sure, taking God out of the equation doesn't solve the problem. See, verse 16, take God out of the picture and wickedness reigns. Terrible things still happen. And here's the thing, it still bothers us when those things happen. Indeed, uh, we could ask, if there is no God, why do you even cry out for justice at all? Uh, In his book, mere Christianity. C.S. Lewis describes how he had originally rejected the idea of God because of the cruelty of life. But then he came to realize that evil was even more problematic for him as an atheist. And in the end, he concluded that suffering provided a better argument for God's existence than against it. Uh, Here's what he writes. My argument against God was that the universe seems so cruel and unjust, but how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing this universe with when I called it unjust? Of course, I I could have given up my idea of justice by saying it was nothing but a private idea of my own. But if I did that, then my argument against God collapsed too, for the argument depended on saying that the world was really unjust, not simply that it did not happen to please my private fancies. Consequently, atheism turns out to be too simple. Lewis's argument is brilliant. The problem of suffering in the world is not solved by concluding that there is no God. For suffering is still there and it still bothers me. But why should it bother me if there is no God? That's what the Bible is saying here in verse 16. Take God out of the equation and you're left with an even bigger problem. Because at the end of the day, if there is no God, you have to conclude that there is no justice in the world and there often never will be. Uh, The morning after the Dunblane tragedy, I heard someone say this. One of the worst things for the parents is the thought that the justice will never be done. She was referring to the fact that after his shooting spree, Thomas Hamilton turned the gun on himself, so justice will never be done. Thomas Hamilton will never be brought to book. Another evil man has got away with murder. That's the conclusion if you take God out of the equation. And most of us can't live with that. We demand justice. We can't live with injustice. And a very interesting moment happens in the next verse in this book. The, the writer of Ecclesiastes certainly can't bear the logical conclusion you reach if you take God out of the equation. Uh, he's, uh, he's written his whole book to take God out of the equation and say, what are we left with? And as soon as he begins to see what he's left with, he quickly puts God back into the equation. And he writes verse 17, I thought in my heart God will bring to judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time for every deed. There's a time for judgment. As the writer says at the end of verse 15, God will call the past to account. There is a time when justice will be done. A date is already in the diary. And in another part of the Bible, we learn more about that date. In the book of Acts, in the New Testament, we read this God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he's appointed, Jesus Christ. That's verse 17 here. God will judge the righteous and the wicked. One person wrote on, on one of these cards, why don't you do something? Well, the good news of the Bible is that God will do something. Justice will be done one day. God is not turning a blind eye, and he's not detached from the wicked events of this world. He has seen what has happened in our newspaper. He did see 9-11. He did, does know about these events. But conclude that there is no God, and the problem of suffering and justice don't go away. They're still with us. So take God out of the equation and there's no justice. Secondly, take God out of the equation and we're just like the animals and by that, he says, death is the end. When you die, you die. Look at verse 18. I also thought, as for men, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Man's fate is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Man has no advantage over the animal. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place. All come from dust and to dust all return. If we insist on living as if God were not there, or at least not interested, God. Uh, tests us or or exposes us would be a better word there in verse 18 he exposes where that thinking leads and he says if we're just like the animals when we're dead we're dead now let me ask can you live with that when celebrating the 200th anniversary of the birth of charles darwin david attenborough produced a series called charles darwin and the tree of life you may remember it you may have watched it and attenborough's conclusion was that we're just the most developed of all the animals we are highly developed animals but at the end of the day that's all we are animals Uh, you may have met people who believe that Uh, you may be someone who believes that and if you are uh, then uh, thank you very much for coming here today and engaging with us over this question Uh, over the years i've met people who hold that view But I am yet to meet anyone who carries it through to its logical conclusion when the rubber hits the road. You see, after that fateful day in Dunblane, I still remember the television pictures of hundreds, hundreds of people lining up to go into the cathedral. Faced there with the death of precious little ones, and they weren't prepared to conclude that we're just like the animals, that when you're dead, you're dead. Now I guess most of the people who lined up to go into the cathedral weren't committed Christians, but they weren't prepared to conclude that there is no heaven. Now let me be autobiographical for a moment, if I may. In the past 20 years as a vicar, I have conducted hundreds of funerals. I have sat and talked with hundreds of bereaved people. Now please don't mishear me, every one matters Every one is special, everyone is hurting, and it matters for every single one. And I never get used to doing it, but I tell you that I've done it hundreds of times, only to make this point, that even though I've met that many people bereaved, I'm yet to meet anyone who has just lost a loved one who does not want to know about life beyond the grave. In that situation, I've met many people who tell me they're not religious, that they never go to church but they do want to know that their loved one is in a better place now. See, when it comes to it, when it really matters, we don't believe, verse 19, that man's fate is like that of the animals. Not, so, not when it's our loved ones who've just died. I take God out of the equation and there is no justice. Take God out of the equation and secondly, there is death is the end. There's nothing beyond death and third well the third conclusion is almost too shocking to state but it's this take God out of the equation and you have to say because we're just like the animals murder isn't wrong we've touched on it already in the words of c.s lewis but here in verses 18 to 20 it kind of stands up and slaps us round the face if there is no god if we're just like the animals as david attenborough would have us believe why are we bothered by great injustices at all why is suffering a problem to us at all why do we get worked up when we hear of tragedies like dunblane and Auschwitz and uh, and nine and, eleven and Derek bird in cumbria in the killing fields of cambodia or the massacres of rwanda and burundi or kosovo or indeed why do we even call them tragedies see when did you ever get worked up about injustice and suffering when you watched the discovery channel or wildlife on one or big cat diary you see those big cats hunt down and then rip apart zebra and gazelle and you might not like the side of it you might be a bit squeamish over these sorts of things but you never cry out for justice to be done No one was ever so morally outraged by such a program as to start a national campaign to bring the lions of the Serengeti to justice. Let's set up camp outside St. Paul's Cathedral. Stand up for the cause of the poor innocent gazelle. Of course not. They're animals. It's what they do. It's part of the food chain. It's the great circle of life. And so do you see, we've been exposed. We've been tested. We don't think that we're just like the animals. And despite his rhetoric, I would guess that David Attenborough doesn't think that either. Maybe he does, but I'd like to ask him. But I wonder if he does when he's faced with death and injustice and suffering. So you think again about the Dunblane tragedy. If we really think we're just like the animals, the conclusion is, is really almost too offensive to state. But I think I need to state it so that we see where this is going. If there is no God, then we have to say that the events of Dunblane were not wrong. Because we're just like the the animals. The events of 9-11 were not wrong. It's just what animals do. Kill other animals. It is a horrible conclusion, but that's the conclusion of the most vocal atheist in our society at the moment, Richard Dawkins. He openly admits that the way to answer the problem of evil is to deny its existence outright. And so he writes these words. In a universe of blind... Physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt. Other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it, nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is at bottom no design, no purpose, no evil, and no other good. Nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares, and we dance to its music. Do you see what he's saying? You and I, we're just products of our makeup, of this cosmic accident. We have no choice in what we do or indeed who we are. DNA neither knows nor cares and we dance to its music. And as the Christian preacher Pete Woodcock says, imagine telling that to the young girl that's just been raped. Oh, the rapist, he wasn't at fault, he was just dancing to his DNA. Imagine going to the victims of Auschwitz and saying that their tormentors were merely dancing to their DNA. Say it to the parents of those dear five- and six-year-old children who died when Thomas Hamilton opened fire. Do you see how horrible and how offensive this is? And if you're offended by it, do you see how suffering and evil may be, if anything, evidence for God? And so the philosopher Alvin Platinga says this. Could there be any such thing as horrifying wickedness if there were no God and we, would, we just evolved? I don't see how. There can be such a thing as evil only if there is a way that rational creatures are supposed to live, obliged to live. A secular way of looking at the world has no place for genuine moral obligation of any sort and thus no way to say there is such a thing as genuine and appalling wickedness. Accordingly, if you think there really is such a thing as horrifying wickedness, then you have a powerful argument for the reality of God. Tim Keller in his excellent book, The Reason for God, which is also over on the bookstall, sums it up like this. It is a mistake, though an understandable one, to think that if you abandon belief in God it somehow makes the problem of evil easier to handle see as we look at suffering and pain in the world we, we do ask questions and it's right that we ask questions but to conclude that God doesn't exist is, is not the answer and so if God does exist, what of his character if we dealt with this question I know briefly but to show you that Suffering suggests that God is there. Well, then, what kind of God is he like? And much more briefly on this point. See, when I see suffering, should I conclude that he's harsh and vindictive? Or that he's apathetic towards evil and injustice? Or or just not powerful enough to do anything? How do we answer that? Well, in part, we already have. We've seen that there is a date in the diary, a day when God will judge the world through his son, Jesus Christ. God does care about evil and suffering. People won't get away with murder. All wrongs will be put right one day. But we don't have to wait until the final day in history to see just how much God cares. For God has already demonstrated what a kind and loving and compassionate God he is as Jesus Christ suffered and died on a cross, over the past 10 years or so i've regularly run a course called christianity explored it's not so different from the course we're going to run uh, starting a week on tuesday called the reason for god the christianity explored course is a terrific course an opportunity in a relaxed and informal environment for people to ask questions and think carefully about these sorts of issues i remember seven or eight years ago before i came to sheffield when i was working in london Uh, running one of these courses and meeting a lovely couple on on this particular course they were in their late 20s and through the first weeks of the course they they listened carefully and asked thoughtful and and helpfully provocative questions but as we discussed things as a group they 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 hadn't really told me or the rest of the group much about themselves which was fine and they kept their their cards close to their chest uh, until the fourth week we were talking about suffering And the husband with tears in his eyes began to tell us that their baby had died four years earlier. And as the tears rolled down his cheek, he said, what does God know about losing a son? And when he said it, the rest of the table went really quiet. And then he realized what he just said. So as we we look at the cross of Jesus Christ, we see that God does know about suffering, that he's bothered about all the wickedness in the world, that he doesn't stand aloof, detached, remote. We see that at the cross of Christ. For at the cross of Christ, God suffered in every way as we do. He suffered injustice, rejection, insult. He suffered physically. He suffered the agony of death. Uh, Jerry Sitzer, again, in this book, A Grace Disguised. remember his three of his family, mother, wife, daughter killed in a car crash. He wrote these words, "'The incarnation means that God cares so much "'that he chose to become human and suffer loss, "'though he never had to. "'I've grieved long and hard and intensely, "'but i found comfort knowing that the sovereign God "'who is in control of everything "'is the same God who's experienced the pain "'I live with every day.'" No matter how deep the pit into which I descend, I keep finding God there. God is not aloof and distant. He knows about suffering. But as I close, let me tell you not only that at the cross of Jesus you can see that God empathizes with you, but it shows you that he loves you with a love that is beyond any love you will ever find in this world. There is so much sadness in our world because we've turned away from God. The creation has been a cosmic car crash. We, the human race, have rebelled against God. And if we're honest, we know that we too as individuals have done that, not living for God as we should, largely ignoring him all our lives. And for our rebellion against the creator of everything, we deserve only his punishment, but God loves us. He loves you. He loves me. And when Jesus was hung on a cross, he took the punishment for our rebellion. That's why he suffered, because suffering is a result of rebellion. But Jesus never rebelled against God, and so his suffering was for our rebellion. And he took the ultimate suffering of being separated from his father because he loves you. You may, if you've read the Bible, have heard these words of Jesus as he was on the cross he cried out in a loud voice my God my God why have you forsaken me now listen again to Tim Keller on this very issue there may have been no greater agony than the loss of a relationship we desperately want if a mild acquaintance turns on you condemns you and criticizes you and she says she never wants to see you again it is painful If someone you're dating does the same thing, it is qualitatively more painful. But if your spouse does this to you, or if one of your parents does this to you when you're still a child, the psychological damage is infinitely worse. We cannot fathom, however, what it would be like to lose not just spousal love or parental love that has lasted years, but the infinite love of the Father that Jesus had from all eternity. Jesus' sufferings would have been eternally unbearable. Yes, Jesus suffered death. Yes, he suffered physical pain. Yes, he knew injustice and rejection and insult. But it was the separation from the Father that caused him so much pain. And that's how we know that God loves us. That's how you can know that God loves you. For Jesus suffered for you to end all suffering. Jesus was God forsaken so that you and I might not have to be. And Jesus not only died, but as Beth so helpfully said to us, he rose again from death so that I one day could be with him for eternity in the new creation where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. Just after the climax of the trilogy, The Lord of the Rings, Sam Gamgee discovers that his friend, Gandalf was not dead as he thought but alive and he cries these words I thought you were dead but then I thought I was dead myself is everything sad going to come untrue and for the Christian the answer to that question is yes well thanks so much for listening can I encourage you to think about uh, this response form that's on the back of the uh, service order? There's a number of things you might like to do. You might say, I want to explore this some more. Uh, I'd, uh, I'd like to uh, come along to this course, The Reason for God. You can come along for one week, see how it goes. Or maybe you'd like a copy of this book. If I were God, I'd end all the pain. Just dot down your details and uh, hand them to me or Gareth at the end of the service. We'll send a copy on to you. Or maybe tonight has raised dishes, it's sure to have done, and you want to talk to somebody about that. Well, again, just jot down uh, your details.